It is Mackling and McGarry. And given some of the stuff that's in the news the last 24 hours, this past week, I just say it. I went and read to some kids yesterday. I love to read month. Went to Hastings School, which is just off of uh, Dunkirk. It's not far from like where Dunkirk crosses St. Mary's and becomes Dakota. <laughs> whole other discussion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to read to some th- grade three and four kids. Had awesome. uh, three little groups of kids, and uh, it was the book that you bought me, by the way, The Couch Potato. The Couch Potato, yes. It's a, it's a terrific little story about <laughs> getting up off the couch and getting out and, and seeing the world. But uh, it, it, when you get to go see these kids and read to the kids, they it, there's typically questions after. There's always time for questions, and, you know, you might get questions like, do you like dogs? Are you married? How much money do you make? Are you afraid of coronavirus? That's one of the questions they got in February of 2020 because it hadn't landed here yet. Sure. Uh, But yesterday, one of the questions from the kids at Hastings was, do you like working on the radio? And I proceeded to say, yes, I love working on the radio. And even though it's tough sometimes because we have because of the nature of our format news talk, we sometimes have to discuss some pretty awful stuff. And then we also go out of our way to ensure that we counter that by discussing lighthearted stuff or nonsense stuff. Like at 645, we do every day. We gather and we, that was a show, like we used to talk about serious stuff sometimes in that segment, but when the pandemic hits, we sort of said this is our mandatory Goof off segment. Yeah, we drew, we drew a line there, a hard and fast line, and that's stuck now over the last four years. So then I get home. I mean, I was there till noon, and uh, I was checking my emails here and there, and I think it was around 4 o'clock where I'm in my email, and I see a note from a publicist in the States about the tragedy at the Kansas City Parade. I'm like, what? And then I looked up what happened. And it was that, it it was just, I thought, I just talked to the kids about how we have to talk about, and I don't mean like a, oh, boo-hoo, we have to come in and discuss this. No, no. But it it just hit me like a ton of bricks. God, what is happening (laughs) that at a parade, a a gathering, a celebration of something joyous for the, the Kansas City football fans, and then there's a shooting, and a whole bunch of kids have gone to hospital. Like, geez. We've become accustomed to the stories of overturned cars and you know fires and these sort of things, right? In the in the aftermath, in the evening, in the night of cele- celebrations for championships, uh, that's not exclusive to America. We saw some pretty gnarly stuff in Vancouver, yeah, back in 2011, if I'm not mistaken, was the year. Vancouver lost to Boston in the Stanley Cup final. They, they called them riots, <laughs> which, you know, you could argue they were. Uh, so you've become accustomed to that sort of, you make that funny face and you look at, you know, really? They're celebrating? And then yesterday, sort of the hallmark of North America, pff, championships around the world. I can remember when the, the Czech national team was the I think they won the gold medal in the Olympics. Prague, the celebration, the things that we say, Toronto, Winnipeg, when the Bombers won the Grey Cup, right? So this is something we can relate to, maybe mm-hmm. on a larger scale, 800,000 people in Kansas City. So that's always been a neat thing. Communities coming together to celebrate and then to have it marred like that yesterday, obviously somewhat shocking. But how long were you shocked for? We're going to discuss this a little bit later in the program. But for how long did your shock turn to, oh, I guess it was only a matter of time before something like happen, something like that happened at one of those events too. You know, America. We'll have more on this in our next segment. And of course, you can get more information on this at cjob.com and at globalnews.ca. And at 6.35, Greg, we just talked yesterday and, and, and the day before about the loss of one Winnipeg Blue Bomber legend, 
and that's Ken Plain. And then yesterday, I checked my email and I get another a note from the Bombers, and I thought, am I like is my email glitching at first? Because I saw the Winnipeg Blue Bombers mourn the loss or something along those lines, and then I saw that it was another one who has passed, Jerry James. Kid Dynamite, as he was known in these parts, uh, 17 years old when he started with the Winnipeg Football Club, passed away, turns out on the same day as we lost Ken Plain. Kenny Plain was 88. Jerry James was 89. An incredible athlete. We'll we'll dig into that a, a little bit more. But I, I'm pretty good friends now with uh, Jeff McWinney. He's known as the keeper of the cup. He takes care of the Grey Cup. And you'll see him at events all over Canada and uh, he lives in Winnipeg. My phone, I, I noticed I missed a call from him yesterday, yesterday afternoon. And so I called him back and I said, terrible news, eh? He's like, Mac, we spoke yesterday about Mr. Plain. I'm like, oh, geez, you haven't heard Jerry James passed away as well. He couldn't believe it on s- subsequent days that we lost these two legendary blue bombers. And so, uh, yeah, the Winnipeg uh, football families uh, in mourning, but so much to celebrate, and we'll we'll do a little bit of that in uh, in our segment uh, after news at the bottom of the hour with Jeff Braun. Mackling and McGarry, as we've been discussing this morning, and in global news, shooting at the Super Bowl victory parade for the Kansas City Chiefs in Missouri has left at least one person dead and 22 more injured, many of whom are children. Global's Jackson Prosco reports on what police are saying about the latest deadly mass shooting in the United States. This was at the end of the parade route. The parade had just wrapped up in an area where about a million people had been expected to gather. The gunshots rang out outside the city's main train station near a stage. We know that several of the injured are in critical condition. Three persons of interest are in police custody right now, but it's not clear what their role may have been. Preliminary reports are describing the shooting as being criminal in nature and not necessarily targeted or an act of terrorism. But of course, the investigation is just beginning. This is going to take time to flush out. Uh, We know that the city's mayor and the state's governor were among those who had to flee for safety. And the city's police chief is expressing disgust at what happened. I'm angry at what happened today. The people who came to this celebration should expect a safe environment. You know, as those gunshots rang out, we saw scenes of panic and mayhem in the crowd, and some of the injured may have been hurt in the crush. Unfortunately, incidents like this are now so common in the United States that today's shooting happened on the sixth anniversary of the Parkland school shooting in Florida, which left 17 people dead back then. Jackson Prosco from Global News. Now, Children's Mercy Kansas City Hospital says it was treating 12 patients from the rally, most of them between the ages of 6 and 15. Hospital says many of the patients suffered gunshot wounds, but all are expected to recover. Kansas City Mayor Quinton Lucas had this to say. I mean, that's that's what happens with guns. I won't get in a big debate right now. I think we're still doing an investigation. But, I mean, what you saw happen was why people talk about guns a lot. We had over 800 officers there, staffed, situated all around Union Station today. We had security in in any number of places, eyes on top of buildings and beyond. And there still is a risk to people. And I think that's something that all of us who are our parents, who are just regular people living each day, have to decide what we wish to do about it. Parades, rallies, schools, movies, It seems like almost nothing is safe. And we had hundreds of law enforcement there working hard today. And I I, I do want to echo what the chief said, who are running towards danger. But in a matter of seconds, someone who wants to disrupt anything, someone who wants to create any type of situation, or someone who is very simply reckless, can change not just one life or two lives, but almost two dozen. And that, to me, is absolutely devastating. And it makes me feel vastly more concerned as a parent just in the world today thinking about that. Lots of good guys with guns at that event yesterday. 
Kansas City has long struggled with gun violence and in 2020 was among nine cities targeted by the U.S. Justice Department in an effort to crack down on violent crime. Last year, the city matched a record with 182 homicides, most of which involved guns. And by the way, in case you hadn't remembered, gunfire also broke out last year at a parking lot near the Texas Rangers World Series Championship Parade. Uh, Fortunately, in those incidents, uh, no one was hurt. You can read more on this at cjob.com and any developments that come out, we will be sure to share with you here on 680 CJOB. Right now, the question for you is what was your part-time job the year you turned 17? If your name was Jerry James, the answer was... I was playing professional football. Yes, that's right, uh, Brett. And we bring this up because for the second time in two days, news that a Winnipeg Blue Bomber legend has left us. Yesterday, we learned that Kid Dynamite had died at the age of 89. In the words of Ed Tate, BlueBombers.com, frequent visitor on our program, when writing about James upon his induction to the Blue Bomber Ring of Honor, The following is a true story. It hasn't been embellished in any manner and or ripped from the pages of a Hollywood screenplay deemed too outlandish to be put into production. As the son of one of the early stars of Canadian football, it wouldn't take long for Jerry James to make a name for himself in 1952 when as a 17-year-old and still in high school, he joined the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. His dad's name, Eddie, a member of the 1935 Grey Cup champion Winnipeg. His nickname was Dynamite, and Jerry would become to be known as Kid Dynamite. He certainly was explosive early in his career, as Jerry James did it all for the Bombers as a running back, receiver, kick returner, and place kicker. In 1954, he was named the Outstanding Canadian in the first year that award was presented and he'd win it again in 1957 scoring a team record 19 touchdowns 18 of those rushing which was a new league record that stood for 43 years and it took 45 before Milt Stiegel bettered James's bomber touchdown mark twice James recorded thousand yard rushing seasons and he carried the football for 5,554 yards in his career. He was a great cup champion four times with the Blue Bombers, and Jerry James was inducted into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame in 1981. I know out there somewhere, my dad knows about this night. And dad, I want you to know that you gave me the drive succeed and to try to match your accomplishments on the field that uh, from our good friend joe Pascucci, who did incredible work over the years for the blue bombers and compiling those highlights and putting together those tribute videos so thanks again to joe playing his work on a consecutive morning here on the start and oh yeah just in case you didn't know jerry james played in 149 nhl games for the Toronto Maple Leafs, including playing in the 1959 Grey Cup and the 1960 Stanley Cup Final. So that's the same season, right? 1959 CFL season, then the 59-60 NHL season. A storybook journey for sure. James was the third Blue Bomber legend to be inducted into the Ring of Honor. Welcome to the Ring of Honor with your name up there with Kenny Plain and Chris Walby. It's a true honor to be able to put you into the Blue Bomber Ring of Honor. Kenny Plain and Jerry James, their impact on sport in Manitoba will live on. Now, GMAC, you've got a book in your hand. Yeah. I was going through my email trying to find out when we interviewed Ron Smith, the author of the book Kid Dynamite, the Jerry James story. And uh, this book, I've, I've read parts of it several times. I, I've, never, I've not sat down and read, read the entire thing in one sitting, is typically what I do with books like this. But Jerry James, his story is absolutely fantastic. If you're intrigued by it, I suggest very highly you seek out this book. The author, once again, is Ron Smith. 
Kid Dynamite, the Jerry James story. Uh, just uh, chock full of uh, inspiring stories. And uh, oh my God, really? You actually, you actually did that. So I wanted to pass that along to you. So um, let's transition now from football to hockey, I would say, Brett, incredibly apropos when talking about Kid Dynamite. That's right. Looking for their second win in as many games. The Winnipeg Jets welcome the San Jose Sharks for Valentine's Day at Canada Life Centre. The two teams had split a pair of 2-1 to decisions earlier this season. This was the rubber match for whom did the puck bounce. Let's find out. Here are your sounds of the game. Barrett's out of the slot now again. Put it back to the line for Sandberg. Far side, Pionk. Wrist it through traffic. He I believe it was deflected in front by Morgan Barron, and Winnipeg opens up the scoring for the second straight game. It's 1-0 for the Jets. Back the other way comes San Jose. Stern moved in, shoots, and it's gloved down by Hellebach. And he will say, ho, 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 look what I've got. Into the corner of the far side, lead pass now. A breakaway, moving right in. Niederreiter, a backhand stopped by Kakanen. What a pass by Stanley out of his own zone. Niederreiter turns again, marches right in. Curl and drag, shoot, stop, rebound, and the putback by Niederreiter is sent weakly back into the crest of Kakanen. Nito Niederreiter with three glorious chances. Sutherland now for Declare. Partial step, races in. Put it back out in front for Granlund, a shot. Stop, rebound, and a backhand by Declare. It's stopped by Shifley in his own crease. Mark Shifley made the save on that and robbed Anthony Duclair of the tying goal. Morsi D to D for DeMello, and he hit the pulse with a shot. Stanley rolled it around. He gave it away, centered out in front, and Carpenter is shot right on. Stopped by Hellebach. So make the final. Jets one, Sharks none. After being outshot 4 nothing early in the game, the Jets found their legs and would ultimately outshoot the Sharks. 39-17. Connor Hellebuck with his third shutout of the season. The Jets now head to the West Coast for what I think you could argue is their biggest game of the year. Saturday night versus the Vancouver Canucks. Vancouver currently sits atop. The NHL standings. Plenty more Jets coverage throughout the day on your radio home of the Winnipeg Jets, including Jets at Noon with Cam and Jim. Up next, we want to use Jerry James's nickname, Kid Dynamite, to inspire the discussion we're about to have and tell you how you can win stuff right after we check your forecast in three minutes on the start. want to talk about nicknames right now we were just talking about winnipeg blue bomber legend jerry james who has died his nickname was kid dynamite his father's nickname was dynamite which just got us thinking about nicknames that we may have had for good or bad because some nicknames are fun and an honor to wear to carry around and some of them not so great yeah, i think it was bob irving that called us knuckleheads or something similar once upon a time i think i think there was a lot of love there mm-hmm. and I took honor that Bob Irving would even go out of his way to even talk about us with some sort of nickname. And if it was in fact knuckleheads to connect it to his nickname, even better. Oh yeah, that's right. Bob Knuckles Irving. <laughs> For a long time I I didn't know his name was was Bob. Oh really? Because I, w- I always heard, <laughs> I always listened to. I've met, mentioned <laughs> this many times, but I listened to BJ and Hal on Power ninety seven, <laughs> right. and they would always just call him Knuckles. <laughs> that, now that's funny. <laughs> so I looked forward to hearing the sports with Knuckles because Clary was an authority. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know his real name. No. That is so good. <laughs> you know your nickname is terrific. When there are people who have no idea what your given names are. Yeah, I felt rather foolish about it afterward, but whatever. Um, so 204-780-6868, the nicknames you've had, good or bad. Jeff Braun, you want to start us off? You know, when your nickname ends with head and the first part is knuckles, that's not too bad. There's much worse nicknames that end with head. Than knucklehead. Oh, no, <laughs> I'm saying. no, no question about it. I've been called those too. Uh, generally, I don't like nicknames. Uh, people, parents slave over come, trying to come up with a given name for their kid, and then just some 
dingus at school, you know, it's like, no, we're going to call this guy, you know, boxes or something silly like that. So <laughs> I don't know. Um, but <laughs> it was a bit of a necessity of my friend group because one of my best friend's name is also Jeff. And uh, to keep the confusion away, I became JB and we called him by his last name. And that's really stuck. Not that anyone's like forgetting what our actual names are, but uh, it's just the way it goes. It's been like that for 40 years and I don't see it stopping anytime soon. <laughs> Didn't you have another one though that had that tied into a Halloween classic song? Uh, the bell. No. Bronster Mash. Oh yeah, <laughs> Kelly does stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly Moore is the master of of the nickname. Yeah, the, the moment I met Kelly Moore, it took him all of two seconds. You know, he said, "Hi, I'm Brett." Brett the Hitman McGarry, hello there. So I wore that and was happy about that because Brett the Hitman heart, he's the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. I think, point. I think Kelly has a nickname for all of us. Like, I'm Fortulata. That's what he calls me. <laughs> he's been calling me that for years, maybe from when I first started here. I, I don't know if he has nicknames for everyone else. Well, I, I started off as Sir Camelot. Uh, <laughs> but then I have been, I don't know if it's an upgrade or a downgrade to just Cameroon. Uh, so I'm not sure if uh, if that's good or bad. I think Sir, Sir, I think it's a downgrade. Sir Camelot's anything from Kelly. It's a lot more prestigious prestigiousness to it. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, Porches, what about you? Well, I, I never really had a nickname growing up. Cammy Bammy was what my grandma always called me, and she's really the only one that that's that said that has ever called that called me that. Um, she can get away with it, of course, being my grandma. She can say whatever she wants. She, you know, but uh, I had a family friend, um, uh, Aaron, uh, and he wanted to be called the Duke named after uh, Marion Robert Morrison, also known as John Wayne. Uh, and uh, he he wanted to give himself the nickname The Duke. Oh, no. And you can't do that. You can't give can't yourself a nickname. Duke. It never works. And, of course, The Duke. Like, that's a pretty cool one. But you just can't sneak that in there. And his name is Aaron, which has spelt with two A's, so everybody just knows him as A.A., so. A.A., Ron. So, that's right. He just got stuck with A.A., and uh, he's not the Duke. Yeah, you can't give yourself a nickname. No, well, George Costanza learned that the hard way. Yeah, what happened there again? What he are you trying to call him? He wanted to be T-Bone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But he ended up uh, being uh, Gammy. Oh, Gammy and Coco, right? Gammy, yeah. he was Coco, yeah. then Gammy. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe there should be a Gammy. George. <laughs> One good monkey. <laughs> okay <laughs> we're gonna get sidetracked yeah, it's side easy to do yeah, I know. <laughs> i've had so many over the years uh when i have uh, one of the names that still sticks for certain of my friends is Cashman b because i always did front cash at taco bell cash my Man name b. tag even said Cashman brett they allowed me to put that on my name tag and uh, which and it, that that's kind of an ironic nickname because I'm hilarious or I'm, I'm hilariously awful with Un-cash? my cash. No, with my cash. Oh, with your I own cash. I was great to the front cash, okay. but I'm terrible with my own money. Uh, in grade seven, one of my classmates, her name was Kizzy. She uh, hold on, that was her actual name. Yeah, I think so. I, I I always knew her as Kizzy. Like it was. I don't think it was a nickname. I don't think I've ever met anybody with that name. But she called me uh, because I was uh, sort of a nerd. With a so she called sort me of. Krang. <laughs> Shut up, Jeff Braun. <laughs> Krang, Krang the Conqueror. Well, I was thinking more of Krang, the uh, the brain, the big brain character from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like inside that guy's stomach. Yeah. Why did she call you Krang? Because I was. She was the uh, implicate. Well, because he was basically like a living brain, right? That oh, character, oh. Krang. So he already looked like a living brain. So therefore, so that was because you. Like, that's a compliment. I sort of took it at that. I think she meant it as a as an insult. But I was like, well, you're saying I have a big brain, so okay. I'm going to take so that. This was at Taco it. Bell. No, this was in grade seven. Oh, grade seven. He's kind of diabolical, Krang. Though you know, he's always up to something. <laughs> Mackling, what about you? Eh, mine have been pretty boring over the years, right? Big Mac, G Mac. Uh, also courtesy of Kelly Moore, just straight Mac. But the one that I hated always was uh, a guy in Vernon started calling me Mackerel one day. And it's like, <laughs> really? That's I, a stinky nickname. So somebody called me, because last said Poitras, he said, started calling me Peaches and Cream in junior <laughs> high. And it, that lasted about a week. And I'm like, you, you got to come stop? up with something better Bring than that. that Bring like, that back. Bring that back now. <laughs> <laughs> like, come on, man. 
<laughs> peaches and cream. And so what stupid. about you, 4J? I just have like that because uh, I'm short. So I've had like Little Man, LJ for Little Jeff, those kind of things. But we do have a uh, another producer who works here and she gives everyone a nickname as well, just like Kelly Moore. Like she calls me Jeffrey Timbers. <laughs> I, I don't know why. I have no idea why. She calls Cam Popeye. Yeah, Popeye Poitras. <laughs> Popeye, oh, that's why Popeye Poitras calls Braun uh, Braunaverse. The Braunaverse, uh, yes. The I, Braunaverse. Because I, I was I was having a, uh, a spinach, spinach salad one time, and that was it. I was Popeye. <laughs> yeah, well, and then I end up calling uh, Braun Braunosaurus Rex. <laughs> and then I, I believe I believe Braun turned around and he he screeched like a pterodactyl. I believe is the noise he made. <laughs> I'm not going to do it now if that's what you're doing. It hurts my throat to do that. Yeah. <laughs> And is it, am I wrong in suggesting that hockey nicknames are the worst? They're the lamest. Because yeah. it's always just, it, it's either, is it E-R or, or like Y? Yeah, so yeah. like uh, Bready, Bretter. Yeah. Bretley, which uh, McNabb calls you every yeah. once in a while. Like, like yeah, Bretley T. I don't mind that at all. But Those guys yeah. aren't hired for their vocal dexterity. So. No, no. For the most part, they uh, are not very good at the nicknames. Like uh, Mark Stone, Stoner. Do you want that? <laughs> Sadder <laughs> Marker. <laughs> 204-780-6868. The nicknames that you have had, good or bad, or do you know somebody who tried to give themselves a nickname? Did you allow it? So we're talking about nicknames this morning. On the lighter side of things, inspired by Winnipeg Blue Bomber legend Jerry James, who has died. His nickname was Kid Dynamite. So we're asking you, have you ever had a nickname? One that you liked? Maybe one you didn't like? We're not trying to bring up bad memories here. <laughs> it sort of occurred to Greg. He, off air, he says, I'm starting to remember things I don't want to remember. <laughs> but uh, hopefully there's hopefully you can find a sense of humor in some of these. So do, what does Jennifer have to say? Well, Jennifer says, uh, teaching in a Mennonite community in Belize for a year, I found that the youth were deep into the nicknames. I think it had to do with the fact there were five Abes and four Cornies all around the same age. Oh, boy. So some of the nicknames were Hamster, Ganja. I don't know why you're getting that at that age. But, no kidding. Uh, more stories, please, Jennifer. Pampers, Walty, Quattro, and Cookie. Okay. Yeah. Well, there was, and it's funny the the mention the, that there are five kids named with one name and four with another. There was a point in this building where there were four Jeffs. Yeah. I think that's probably why we just call Forte Forte, just as a way to separate. That's true. I'm trying to think who the... Fourth one was. I know. He's in sales. Oh, of course. He actually works in this building. So yeah. if you're listening this morning, Jeff, uh, hello there. Um, and then as far as uh, another nicknames go, Lisa says, in, in high school, I said something kind of dumb in French class. A friend of my rep- mine replied, wow, what a ding dong thing to say. We all laughed. Since that day, I have been no. dinger. Or ding. No. When I met my husband and he met those friends, he <laughs> took to that nickname I like bet. nobody's business and it has stuck for 35 years. <laughs> yeah, don't introduce the new partner to the high school friends that have uh, interesting nicknames for you. That's just one piece of advice. My dad texts and say, hey, hold on. What about Nikolai Ehler's nickname for a hockey nickname? His nickname is Fly. He says, that's a pretty good hockey nickname. I would concur. That's a good one. Yeah, I like yeah. that. Yeah, it's just so fast. I think, may, and maybe the, the the clarification I should offer there is is the 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 nicknames perhaps that are that are given to each other, like a hey, because I've even heard it down the hall. Hey, Tother, or uh, there's Zinger. You remember Craig Heisinger? Of course, just known as Zinger. Well, Kevin Shoveldayoff is Chevy. And one of the more popular TV shows right now is Shorzy. Oh, yeah. Right? That one doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but, no. you know, that's uh, just a byproduct of your name and adding a little Y on the end there. And uh, Tracy says, my son's, my son, when he was two years old, he'd walk around the house with one hand holding a drink, <laughs> spilling the beverage all over the place. So we would say, Tommy, two hands. 
So my mother-in-law started calling him Tommy Two Hands. Tommy Two-Tone back in the day. Jacob Two-Two. There we go. Meets the hooded fang. I'm two <laughs> plus two plus two years old. <laughs> it is Mackling and McGarry. Premier Wab Canoe joins us in studio at 8.35. If you have any questions for the Premier, feel free to share them at 204-780-6868. But right now, we want to talk about how our next guest has been joining us for years to discuss his passions. Yeah, community leader from Winnipeg's North End with family roots in Shimadawa First Nation. Michael is host, helper, publisher, published author, on-screen personality, and sought-after public speaker. Michael happily shares his words, wisdom, and welcoming energy across Canada and around the world. And as mentioned, adding published author to that list of accomplishments and passions, we say good morning to Michael Redhead Champagne. Michael, good morning, my friend. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me today. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday to you and congratulations on this. I knew you were working on it and now to see this and to be able to see the cover of the book and to see it come to life is is fantastic. So uh, well well done, my friend. Uh, the book is called We Need Everyone. What, when did you decide that you needed to write this story? Well, this story was written as probably began writing it all the way back in 2019. So it it take it took quite a bit of time from the dream until today. And the reason that I wanted to write this book is it's that it's aimed at uh, children and families because when I grew up here in the north end of Winnipeg and I looked around and I saw how many talented and gifted and intelligent people I had around me. And then I would leave the North End and people wouldn't see those, that same level of gifts when I was outside of the neighborhood. And so it became difficult for me to, to convince sometimes those kids that they were valuable and that they had skills that the rest of the world would really benefit from. So We Need Everyone is really a message to all of those kids who feel like the world might not need them. But it's it's a correction to that thought process of saying we actually need everyone. And it even explains in there a three-step process and how you can find your gift and encourages you to help others find their gifts as well. well Michael, for aspiring authors who might be listening, you got any, any advice on how to get started? For sure. Um, for me, I talk a little bit differently than I write. And so it was important for me to find a way to capture my energy and the way that I speak on the written page. And so what I ended up having to do was simply record a video of me talking. um, And I was just imagining that I was talking to all of the kids in the world. And as I was recording that, I was able to then finish having my talk, type up that talk. And from there, that was the basis of the book. So technically, I didn't even write this book. I spoke this book. I know one of my boys, his teacher in grade nine taught him that method. He he always, he had a hard time sometimes in writing assignments, sitting down, putting pen to paper. And she was kind enough to sit down with him a couple different times and do just that. Hey, tell me about this. And he would do it and, and she would record it, transcribe it for him, and then he could tweak it. So uh, is this a technique that you learned from somebody else, Michael, or was just your own brainchild? Hey, let, let, let me see if this works. It was suggested by my business partner, uh, Angie Lamarand, who was noticing that as I was writing the manuscript, or the supposed to be manuscript, that it was sounding like legislation or a report or <laughs> policy because I do a lot of those things. Right. And so she said, Michael, this is a kid's book. It's not a legislative document. And so that really helped shift my mindset. And since I speak in a much more lighthearted way than I write, that was the solution for me. So if there's anyone out there listening right now who speaks a little differently than you write, that's okay. A little bit of video recording, a little bit of typing will get us to the writing. That's really cool, Michael. I like that concept. And I'm just curious with the the We Need Everyone theme, does the book at all touch on on working with people with whom you might have differences or perhaps disagreement, uh, would, would that fall? Because I, you can learn a lot from people who don't necessarily agree with what you have to say. Well, it's not named inherently in the book that we should, you know, 
learn from those that we disagree with. But what it does emphasize is that there are uh, numerous gifts and abilities in our community that we need that we may not have. So it encourages folks to lean into and lean on other people who have gifts that may be different than theirs. And my hope is that folks would then be able to make the application in their day-to-day lives to begin recognizing that just because someone disagrees with me doesn't mean that they don't have a gift. They have a gift that they're practicing and sharing in their own life, and that should be respected as well. I love that message. Uh, Michael, you have to have, have a certain profile, I would suspect, to approach the individual who did the illustrations for this book. This is this pretty big deal. Yes, Tiff Bartell actually is our illustrator and the publisher is Highwater Press. Luckily for me, Highwater Press did the matchmaking and I was able to connect with Tiff Bartell. The illustrations themselves are bright, energetic, colorful. The representation in the book is um, a smorgasbord of uh, abilities and uh, body shapes and skin tones, just so that folks know that when I say we need everyone, uh, we meant it. And how did it feel to see, because I see that you're on the cover here. How did it feel when you saw your, your own visage transformed in this way? Well, it's, it's fun for me to be on the cover and to be in the book, but it's even funner that my real-life cat sushi is on the cover and also in the book as well. And kids seem to really be enjoying finding Sushi the Cat <laughs> inside of the We Need Everyone book because he's in and out of some of the pages, being a little tricksy cat like they do. And so the kids are really enjoying that. And actually, my book launch that's coming up this Saturday, not only will I be signing books, I actually had a stamp made at a local company here in Winnipeg called the Canadian Rubber, Great Canadian Rubber Stamp. And they were able to make Sushi's paw print, his real live paw print. Oh, that's cool. So anyone who comes to the book launch, I'll sure, I'll sign the book as the author, but Sushi, the cat, will also grace the, the signature area of your book with his real-life stamped paw print. A stamp of approval from, from Sushi. And, and you look at the cover, and uh, Brett said it so well, but, I mean, you know it's you instantly, which is outstanding. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, the Saturday is the book launch. You mentioned it. You had to add a second a second launch because your first one, you know, it's a free event, but you filled up. So how can people uh, get registered so that they don't miss out? Yes. So our first event uh, is at the Manitoba Museum at 1130, hosted by Donna Marrow and Kim Wheeler uh, this Saturday. But it was so popular, we added a second show. So the second show begins at 2 o'clock p.m. Anybody listening right now can go onto the Manitoba Museum website and check out the activities for this Saturday, or you could go to my website, michaelredheadchampagne.com slash we need everyone, where there's a big link at the top of the page where folks can register. Well, Michael, congratulations on uh, this achievement and good for you for, for taking the time to, to make this dream a reality. And thank you for taking the time to speak to us this morning. It's always a privilege and a pleasure. Well, thank you for sharing your gift on the radio with everyone. Every morning, you inspire many. Michael Redhead Champagne, he is a community advocate. He is now a published author, and he's one of the most terrific people you will ever meet. Again, the book launch, 11.30 a.m., 2 p.m. at the Manitoba Museum, for we need everyone. It is our monthly visit with the Premier of Manitoba, Wab Canoe. Mr. Premier, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me back. Well, thank you for coming. It's a pleasure to see you again. And we understand there's a big health care announcement coming today. What's on the table? Well, we have the Prime Minister uh, in town today, and we'll be doing a uh, press conference to talk about the uh, new health care funding that we're going to use to hire more nurses and doctors and cut down on those wait times in the ERs and the wait times for surgeries. Uh, there's also a seniors component to it, too. Uh, we want to move to more hours per day per uh, resident of people who are living in the long-term care, the personal care homes. 
So we got to do better by seniors. I think we all recognize that. And basically the federal government's coming to town. The prime minister's here today so that we could uh, put pen to paper and say, you know, over the next two, uh, 10 years, there's going to be $1.2 billion additional uh, invested into these healthcare priorities. I won't be the first person to ask you this. I won't be the last person to ask you. Money's great and the intent and all is fantastic. Where are you going to find these people? We're training a lot of them right now. And so one of the challenges that we actually have is that because we've expanded the doctor's seats, the nurse's seats at the universities and colleges, we now got to find a way to hire them once they graduate. So that's where this uh, announcement that we're doing today is going to come in handy. The other thing, and for sure folks listening from outside the perimeter are going to be nodding their heads on this. The other thing is we got to do international. We got to do folks uh, from overseas who have credentials, whether that's a nurse, a healthcare professional, a doctor, and get those recognized more quickly. There's people in Manitoba right now who are working maybe as an aide, but could be working as a nurse if we move that along, right? So that's one of the other priorities we'll be focusing on with this. What's the holdup there? I mean, you're in government now. I'm sure you know some of the insight and, <laughs> and the inside. Why, why is this the case? We've been hearing about this for years. People that come from afar that are qualified to do a job, they meet maybe need some, some training language-wise or maybe to certif- get certified, not to put words in your mouth, but what's, what's the hang-up? In a word, bureaucracy. You know, like uh, each and every one of these cases has like a unique and complex explanation. But at the end of the day, it's just bureaucracy. And so the thing that we're doing is we're saying, let's just cut through the excuses. We put it in the mandate letter to Shared Health yesterday. Let's focus on solutions instead of excuses. And instead of, you know, you have uh, somebody who's a doctor in another country who's willing to move to a community like Carberry. And instead of just saying, no, they're not qualified. Why don't you say, well... Let's work together on getting this person qualified, right? So it's a culture change that we have to bring in. Not going to happen overnight, but we're starting on it. Big news uh, in the silica sand world yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, pretty big deal for economic development, something that you campaigned on, something that you you talk about, glass for solar panel production. Um, This looks like a potentially game-changing project, Mr. Premier. Can Manitobans... Be confident that all the environmental concerns have been asked and answered. Yeah. To be clear, we're talking about a mine near Hollow Water, First Nation, Seymourville, east side uh, of uh, Lake Winnipeg, and then a solar plant in Selkirk. So we're talking about 270 jobs here. A lot of jobs on a reserve in a Métis community for people in that area. So we're talking about uh, about 30 jobs in that region, and then about 240 jobs in Selkirk proper, plus all the construction jobs. So there's going to be a lot of tradespeople, six to 700 people building this new facility. And on the environmental side, this is a proven technique. Uh, It's moving, basically, they do a small area one year, then they remediate it, they move over, they do the next patch the next year, and it's 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 all with the open approach that we've already seen in the mining industry. So there's not the same risk as like bringing in a new technique. So basically, the environmental side is proven, this company has worked to get, you know, the First Nations and local communities on side. They have agreements in place. We're going to be supporting them, make sure those agreements are as strong as they could be so that there is jobs, economic, environmental protections, all those different things. But at the end of the day, hey, we have a low carbon electricity source here in Manitoba. And if we make investments like this in products that the world is hungry for, we can go to the market and say, by this solar glass, it's more environmentally friendly than anywhere else in the world. So all of a sudden, Manitoba has a, an advantage, an advantage that we can actually take to the bank and create good jobs here for people in our province. We do have a question from a listener on this topic. And the question is, how will the sand be transported from Hollow Water to Selkirk if by truck on Highway 304, this will destroy that road in a month. It's just not adequate for heavy truck traffic. This, once again, from one of our listeners. No, it's a good question. And so as part of this, we plan to invest in infrastructure in the region. We do need to uh, make sure that the roads uh, are upgraded so that they can handle the increased uh, traffic. This is all part of the planning and the evaluation that we did prior to deciding to say yes to the CPS project, the one that we're talking about here. So definitely... With this and with the other mines that we're looking at standing up across Manitoba, making sure the local infrastructure, the roads, the bridges are equipped to handle it is part of the equation. So actually, there's 
economic uh, activity and jobs that are going to come with the road construction piece too. Speaking of that part of the province and the east side of Lake Winnipeg, yeah. the ice road situation this year is tenuous at best. Is yep. there a long-term solution here? What what work are you doing towards uh, maybe at some point not being dependent on ice roads that, that we maybe cannot depend on? Well, you know, we're starting those conversations. But the immediate challenge we have is... The warm weather has been great in a lot of ways, but when it comes to ice roads, it means we might have an ice road season for these northern communities that might be two or three weeks long. And you talk to them, all the building materials, the fuel, the gas, the diesel that they need for the year, you're talking, you're talking about moving maybe 3,000 truckloads on those roads at 30 kilometers an hour during that three-week window. So it's a big logistical challenge. So what we've done as a province is we stood up the incident command structure. Uh, you probably remember hearing about that during, you know, different fire seasons or the pandemic, stuff like that. Basically what that allows us to do is to bring the folks from emergency measures who have really good logistical planning, the ability to get all those loads lined up and to figure out how to move them through these roads during that very short window. And then we're sitting there with the First Nations leadership, federal government, and just making sure we're putting our minds together to, to try and tackle this problem now. Because if we don't move those supplies now, we're going to be dealing with this problem for the rest of the year. And the costs only increase. And of course, all the other human uh, impacts that that has as well. Mental health, uh, another interaction, uh, lethal interaction for Winnipeg police on a mental health call. Um, you probably know the numbers as well as our listeners do, Mr. Premier, Winnipeg police are required to detain more than 1,100 people. This was last year under the mental, the Provincial Mental Health Act alone. What, what do we need to do differently? I mean, 21,000 well-being checks, 58 a day. It's one of the largest responsibilities of Winnipeg Police Service. The numbers are they're startling. Yeah, they really are. And uh, in the campaign, we talked about adding uh, 100 mental health workers, right? There's a few existing programs out there but clearly when you talk about the numbers that you're laying out there we don't have the staff right now to respond to the need so as part of many of our priorities in healthcare, this mental health piece is one of the areas we're investing in it's going to be in the budget this year coming through on that commitment and our hope is that the more resources we can have for a mental health worker a mental health professional to respond to a mental health call that should alleviate the pressure on law enforcement, and then law enforcement can uh, respond uh, more directly to the quote-unquote straight-up law enforcement calls. Who's sitting at the table in terms of deciding who, how that program, how that should be implemented? There are many tables, uh, to use your analogy there. Of course, we're working with law enforcement. We're also working with the healthcare sector and uh, with community as well. So we're trying to take a comprehensive approach to what is a, a, a situation that requires compassion, but at the same time, we have to keep the public safety aspect of this top of mind throughout. Premier Canoe, of course, earlier this week, we learned of one of the darkest days I've ever heard this situation involving the deaths of this family from Carmen. Uh, we heard from you in a particularly emotional and stirring statement after this horrific event. What are you hearing from Manitobans in the aftermath of this? Well, I think far and away, the first thing is people just can't understand. Like it just stops you in your tracks when you hear about a two and a half month old, four year old, six year old, 17 year old, the mom. I think whether I'm at the hockey rink, whether I'm talking to folks from the region, whether I'm talking to folks from across the province, I think people are just disturbed. And so, uh, you know, first, I, I do want to repeat my uh, thanks to the first responders, to law enforcement who are on the scene. I can't imagine what the, the week has been like for those folks uh, responding to this. And then also to thank the folks in the, the community, the schools, uh, the churches who are stepping up and being there for one another. In a moment like this, it's, uh, it's easy to, to recognize the darkness of this. And I think... The challenge for us as Manitobans is to say, well, we have to uh, find a way uh, to push through and recognize we're not helpless in a situation like this. First, we can respond with compassion. We can respond with uh, comfort and support for people who are affected by this. And then, of course, with us in government, the responsibility is, okay, what have we got to do 
in terms of a response here uh, to keep women safe, to keep children safe, to keep kids safe in our province, right? And so those are some of the conversations and uh, actions uh, that we're taking. We appreciate your time today, uh, Mr. Premier. First face-to-face with the Prime Minister today since uh, becoming Premier, yes? Yeah, that's right. We've uh, spoken on the phone uh, a few times to date, uh, but this will be the first uh, in-person meeting. The good news is uh, we got some more resources for our health care system here in Manitoba, and I know that's a top priority for all of our people in this province. And before we let you go, I just got to ask you this uh, on a lighter note. Yeah. Um, I used to, I live in your riding, and I used to get a newsletter that made me smile every time <laughs> I got it because of its name, The Canoes. The Canoes. Uh, is that going to come back? It is. Uh, we haven't had a chance to put out the new edition of the canoes uh, since the election, but you will get one soon for sure. All right. Yeah. It makes you smile. In a good way. I love the, the word play and you know, how do you do them while the canoe. jokes, right? Yeah. yeah great stuff. Yeah. Manitoba Premier Wab Canoe joining us live on 680 CGOB. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Mackling and McGarry, we're asking you about nicknames. We're listening to the Out Here Brothers, circa the mid-1990s. Asking you about nicknames, good or bad. One of our runners up here, Jim, says, Growing up playing hockey, my nicknames were Boom Boom, because I could hit big. And before hitting, I was Kid with the Blue Lid, in reference to my blue bucket. Love it. Okay. Yeah. So that's another one. Mm-hmm. I'll let you pick, Greg. We only got a couple of minutes. Oh, I love roses here because I, I I think we should go and get our own nicknames assigned. Uh, nicknames, my family's the master of nicknames, says Rose. My dad comes from a family of 13. Not a single one of the brothers and sisters go by their given names. Here's some examples. Francisco is Kiko. Andrea is uh, Deli. Jose is Pepe. <laughs> Guillermo is Willie. Rafael is Leleng. And Victor's Jun. <laughs> the list goes on. For me, I go by Rose, uh, Rogi, or Rogi, Rogi, Igor, but my real name is Rosario. And when you marry into our family, you not only get absolutely confused, but they test you. So, Greg, Brett, you're welcome to come to a family gathering where your head will spin. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll have to pass on that. Well, maybe. Only if we get our own nicknames. Yeah, that would be, it would be, it would be a tremendous honor. But uh, we're jumping to our winner, who is Gary H., who says, in my previous lifetime as a fighter pilot in the Air Force, tactical so- call signs, or nicknames, were a mainstay. You were assigned your TAC call sign for something as mundane as a variation of your last name. For example, I got Hooker, because my last name is Hook. However, there were many that were assigned for notable exploits of the offending pilot. Giving this as a family show, I will pass on the examples. But in 1985, we had a group of Spanish Air Force generals visit our fighter base in Germany. They wanted to observe our implementation process for the CF-18 as they too were getting the Hornet. I had a smattering of Spanish, so I was assigned as the gopher for this group of generals. They were a great group and looked after me quite well. Upon leaving, they bestowed upon me a new call sign, Señor Gancho. That ended up sticking with me for many years. And when translated, Gancho means hook. But it's so much more fun when you don't know what it stands for. <laughs> Senior Gancho, over and out. Congratulations, Senior Gancho. You are a winner this morning. He's going to WSO Sultans of String Walking Through Fire, which happens at the beginning of March. I want to tell you about the debut memoir from an award-winning journalist, The book is described as an incredible history of a family's battles across generations, a hilarious and emotional coming-of-age story, and a powerful reckoning with what it means to be black in Canada, particularly when you have strong American roots. The book, Brett, is called My Fighting Family, Borders and Bloodlines, and the Battles That Made Us. And the author is our guest, Morgan Campbell. Morgan, good morning to you. Hey, how's it going? That's a very slick intro. Like, you guys could be like a rap duo going back and forth. Y'all like kid and play. Real good timing. <laughs> kid and play. There's a wonderful blast in the past. Way to go, man. That's great. <laughs> kid and play. Uh, one of my favorites from a long time ago. Uh, did you have parties like that once upon a time, Morgan? No, not at all. As you'll read in the book, uh, I was sort of a, a loser in the first half of high school. My sister had friends. 
So she would get to go out and go to these like all ages parties in Toronto. We grew up in Mississauga. I'd just be at home with my mom and the dog in my stack of Sports Illustrated magazines reading. We'll talk about uh, this statement here. Uh, powerful reckoning with what it means to be black in Canada. Potent statement, uh, maybe uh, even a loaded one. W- what do you mean by that? Uh, no, it's not loaded at all. It's, um, you know, the way I describe the book to people is that uh, it's, a, it's a memoir about growing up black and American in Canada in a family whose two halves do not get along. And so, you know, my parents are both from Chicago and their parents are from their, you know, their parents' generation kind of straddles the great migration. Got two par- grandparents born up North, two grandparents born down South. And the reason I mention all that is because uh, when you grow up black outside Toronto and my background is American, you know, that makes us uh, minorities in two very important ways in the sense that we are black people in a city and country where most of the people are white. We are also African-Americans in a black community where most of the people are from someplace besides the United States. And so uh, you wind up having to, yeah, reckon with, reconcile uh, your blackness with your Canadianness, and try to make these, uh, find ways for these identities to all coexist in the same way that I had to make these, my, my personal identity as a, as a Campbell and as a Jones, I had to make these identities coexist knowing that the Campbells and the Joneses didn't get along. So why don't they get along? Like, why is it you're fighting family? <laughs> uh, that's a very good question. And honestly, no one has ever really been able to get to the bottom of it in the sense that all we know is that uh, my mom's mom, sorry, my mom's dad, who was a musician, he was the, he's the whole reason that we came to Canada because he used to get booked as a pianist in uh, Chicago. He used to get booked in Toronto and he really fell in love with the city. And he brought my grandmother and my uncle, uh, my uncle Jeff, whom some of you guys know because he plays bass in Red Rider. Um, and uh, my parents wound up following them. But like the, the root of that conflict basically is that uh, his family, they grew up in a white neighborhood. My mom, my dad's mom's family grew up in the next neighborhood over, the black neighborhood. Um, and so my dad's mom thought that my mom's dad was like stuck up. They thought they were from different social classes when in reality they were both working class families. So my, and my dad's, my mom's dad thought my dad's mom's family was like, you know, kind of backwards and, and, and country, even though they were, the, the families were very much the same in, in that they were new arrivals from the South and these kids were the first ones born up North. But there's this, there was this perception that they came from different social classes and that led to basically a rivalry that <laughs> might still be going. Okay. So first of all, cool. Jeff Jones is your uncle, you said? Yes, 100%. That's, that's cool. I'm a huge fan of Red Rider and uh, Spider and Tom and everybody. Um, yeah. So that's cool. So what is it, what do you, where do you think that perceived difference came from? Is it as simple as um, working class individuals, black, white, or other in Canada, maybe have it better than working class people, say, in Chicago? Where Where is that, that, that uh, misperception, if there is no, one? No, that perception, that between those two people, that just has everything to do with those two people. Um, and so, but again, just the way it plays out is the fact that my grandfather's family, uh, my great-grandfather, to take it way back, he had a job in a lumberyard. The lumberyard was in a, a white neighborhood. The company would rent houses to employees. And so they wound up renting a house in this white neighborhood. But it was, a, it was a working class family with a working class job. But because they lived where they lived, my uh, dad's mom perceived them as thinking that they were something better than they were. So there's this perception that they were from different social classes. And really, they grew up very similarly, except that one was in a, 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 the only black family in a, in a white neighborhood, and the other was you know, a few blocks north uh, above the de facto divi- dividing line uh, in a black neighborhood. Okay, so the so then the next question that comes to my mind, what's the difference between, you know, in terms of your perception, if we're talking perceptions, what's the difference between boy, growing up black in, in Canada versus growing up black in America? And again, well, when you ask that question, there's, there's degrees to it. Because again, you know, if I had grown up, in Chicago, where my parents did, uh, the cultural mix is very different because it's like where my parents grew up is a, a segregated city. They had like a crew of black kids in their high school. The black kids came from the black neighborhood. And 
in the black neighborhood, the overwhelming majority of the people in that neighborhood were like each other in the sense that if you were born in the 40s or 50s, you were born in Chicago, but your parents might have been from down south. But they were all, for the most part, African-American with very, 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 very few uh, like first generation people from the Caribbean or from Africa or wherever, whereas here it's the opposite. And so you're this minority overall because most of the people are white, or at least when I was growing up, most of the people around me were white. Um, you get to high school, you have black friends, but most of their friends, but most of their families are from uh, the Caribbean or they're from Africa. Uh, you know, they might be from Nigeria, Ghana, someplace like that. And so, again, you're a minority on two fronts, whereas in the United States, I would have been a minority on one front. So on the one hand, <clears throat> you know, you want, you find yourself uh, putting up with stuff that a lot of black people from across the diaspora have to put up with, uh, you know, when you find yourself in a country where it's mostly white, whether that's being second guessed, having your intelligence second guessed, you know, sort of being uh, 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 judged by a set of stereotypes, whatever it is. <clears throat> But again, when you deal with black people, you're coming from a background that like a lot of your peers are not used to. So you also have to you also wind up butting your head against this wall because people don't believe that you're from where you're from. So you people ask where you're from. You say Mississauga. Well, where are your parents from? Chicago. Where are their parents from? Chicago. And they keep asking, going back generations and generations, hoping that at some point you're going to say Jamaica or <laughs> Trinidad. And when you don't say that, you know, you, you wind up with... Some people can get with it. Other people act like you should not even exist. But um, it's, it's, it's culturally, it's a very different dynamic than I would have encountered if I had grown up when my parents grew up. Our guest is Morgan Campbell, author of My Fighting Family, Borders and Bloodlines and the Battles That Made Us. And one of the battles that your family has dealt with in its history is involves dealing with white supremacists. So what's that like knowing that that is a part of your family's history? Uh, 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 maybe it sounds, <laughs> it's, it sounds, I guess, jarring to you. But like, if you talk to families like mine, black American families with roots in the South, again, that's something that everybody has butted heads with at some point. And somebody has, you know, lived on the business end of, of, of blackness, business end of white supremacy. Um, but there's also a really important story in that, in the book about allyship in the sense that at some point, uh, when, again, my mom's family lived in this all white neighborhood and some neighbors moved in and they were from somewhere, not somewhere far outside Chicago. No one knew where they might've been from Kentucky, but they did not like having black neighbors and they started throwing rocks at the house. <clears throat> at the house. And so uh, a guy where my grandpa was working as a musician found out about this. And this guy was a mob enforcer. And he basically offered to kill my grandparents next door neighbors uh, for throwing rocks at the house. And he said, Hey, you give me the word and no one will ever know who did it. And they'll never connect you to it. Now that to me yeah, and so there's there's the there's the that's allyship. <laughs> that is allyship, right? Because what this and this guy's a, a mob enforcer. He's used to doing all kinds of grimy things, but there's a code, right? And there's things you you don't do. And what you don't do is throw rocks at people's house when uh, the man of the house is out working. You don't throw rocks at old ladies and little kids, and uh, and you don't disturb my friends. And this guy, you know, thought of my grandfather as like a not a friend, friend, but a friend, you know. And the fact that this mobster was willing to uh, put some white people six feet under to protect these black people, that is a stunning uh, but very stark illustration of allyship. Now, I don't recommend like just going and threatening deadly violence to people, but like for him, this is sort of like when a cat kills a mouse and brings it to you. Like in his world, that's a tribute, right? That's just something you do. So he, in his way, uh, was an ally and you kind of have to admire that because he was willing again to look to, 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 to people that just superficially should have been on his team. He could have aligned himself with the white people throwing rocks at the black people, but on a very human level, he, he, he related to my grandfather and said, and said I'm willing to do what I can do uh, in my world uh, to help this problem go away. Now he did not wind up uh, killing the neighbors, but <laughs> the neighbors did stop throwing, did stop throwing stones. 
And before we let you go, Morgan, um, I'm just curious, you know, based on the experience that you shared, and thank you for giving us the perspective on what it was like to, to grow up in Canada and, and uh, the stuff that you dealt with. Uh, but like I went to a small school, I went to a small French immersion school, and we only had like three or four kids who were black in our in our school. And I often wondered uh, if they if they maybe were lonely or felt isolated. And I just wondering if it was that. Did you did you ever feel like that when you were growing up? No, not really. Uh, you know, because I always had stuff to do. I always had friends. It's 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 not <laughs> always that stark. But just because I I didn't always feel alienated and isolated from all my classmates doesn't mean I didn't deal with different gradations of of racism. It also doesn't mean that racism alone defines my experience as a black person in Canada or in the U.S. And this is. Uh, not an a not not an explicit objective of the book. It's not something I'm saying. It's just something I'm showing in the sense that, yes, this book is about uh, growing up black in Canada, and it and it taps into a lot of like the broader historical trends, like the Great Migration, like immigration to Canada uh, of people of all colors. Um, but at the same time, it's I portray uh, a black family as human beings, as as fully formed uh, characters who have lives that yes are shaped by racism but the fact that we are victims not victims but because victims is, i don't even like to use that word but the fact that we have to confront racism does not uh define us it's just something that happens well you have significantly whetted our appetite for this book morgan <laughs> thank you so listen thanks a lot for taking a few minutes to talk no, to us today no uh, because problem. i'm really intrigued no problem go find us your favorite re- retailer in person or online Morgan Campbell joining us live on 680 CJOB. He is an award-winning journalist and now the author of My Fighting Family, Borders and Bloodlines and the Battles That Made Us. I know who I'm calling if anyone throws any rocks or throws any more (laughs) eggs at my house.